Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. My dad was definitely a chain smoker, you know, which I don't think was as big a deal to be honest in those early days to us as his drinking. And, you know, that's the thing. I think he was so stressed and my parents had a lot of financial stress and burdens, which of course as kids we didn't know about. And so I think his way to escape that was that whenever he had even half an hour. He has this amazing ability, even in those days, to just have a nap and sleep. But I think when he actually had more time for him, the way to decompress and disconnect was just to drink. And so I think for my brother and me, our memories of those early days are a lot of fighting between my parents over drinking. Hey there, friends, and welcome back to At the End of the Tunnel. So this week, I'm speaking with Malika Chopra, who's the author of the meditation children's book, Just Breathe, as well as the follow-ups, Just Feel and Just Be You. Malika is also founder of Intent.com, and in this episode, she shares her story of growing up as the daughter of Dr. Deepak Chopra, who we've all obviously heard about. And we talk about Malika's early, early days and what that was like growing up outside of Boston as an Indian American and watching her mom and dad fight over her stressed out dad's alcohol addiction. Kind of hard to imagine that one. And how it was later seeing her dad, Deepak, transform into this wellness advocate and becoming a best-selling author after learning Transcendental Meditation in the mid-1980s, and what her experience was like when he brought her and the rest of the family in to learn meditation when she was just nine years old. And that's when things started to get really bizarre, because Deepak became more and more well-known, and Malika found herself in the company of the likes of Elizabeth Taylor and Michael Jackson and several other celebrity clients of her dad's. She went on to work for MTV and then later she helped to start Michael Jackson's foundation and eventually she left all of that, raised a bunch of money for a startup only to have it fail in 2000 when the dot-com bubble burst. And she documented all of this several years later in her best-selling memoir, Living with Intent, My Somewhat Messy Journey to Purpose, Peace and Joy. And after several more years of writing and teaching meditation and raising two beautiful daughters with her husband, Malika wrote her first children's book, which became a bestseller as well. And like many of my guests, I've known Malika for a few years. But in this conversation, I have to say, she shared some stories that I did not know. And I really think you're going to enjoy this one. So without further ado, I present to you Miss Malika Chopra. Malika, thanks so much for joining the podcast. I love to start these conversations off talking about childhood. Now, you grew up near Boston, Massachusetts, correct? Yeah, so 
My parents came here in 1970. My dad, Deepak Chopra, at the time uh, was a young resident coming here for training. At that time, they were recruiting a lot of doctors to the U.S. And my parents had just got married and moved actually to New Jersey, got pregnant. My mom got pregnant and they didn't have enough money to have me in the U.S. actually. So technically... I was born in India because my mom went back to India to have me so her parents could buy, you know, take care of it. And they bought her a ticket to return back to the U.S. So I was actually an Indian citizen till I was 18. But I grew up in Boston at that point. They had then moved to Boston. What's this story about them having just eight dollars when they came here? Is that is that real? Yeah, it is real. So at that time, if you talk to most immigrants who came here, probably from India specifically, they were only allowed to bring $8 with them. So that was just the law. But my dad had been recruited here to complete his you know, medical residency. So when they got here, they moved to Jamaica Plains and uh, he was doing you know, his training there. Um, moonlighting. And for them, it was quite an experience because they came from India, where they both were super well educated. But when they came here, they had never seen things like color television. When they went anywhere at that time, there was such a shortage of doctors. So they were welcomed everywhere. And they tell these stories about how They'd walk into like Sears and all these salespeople would surround them and they'd say, here, take this, take that. And they never had the idea of what credit was. So they just couldn't believe that they could on the spot pick up a color television or their first car just like that without cash. <laughs> like it was all on credit. And so that was like an amazing experience for them. So at that time, there was just a huge difference between the life they had grown up in in India and then coming here. Where in India is your family from? They're all from New Delhi. Our families are actually originally from what is now Pakistan. So we're all Punjabi. So actually, my grandparents all grew up and lived in Pakistan. And then during partition had to leave. So definitely are refugees. And my father was actually born on kind of the eve of Indian independence. Do you remember what your favorite toy or activity was as a young child? I don't really have, like, it's a weird thing. I really don't have clear memories of childhood. In general, I think I was very happy and felt secure. But so my mom was very much in her bubble of being an Indian immigrant here. She did not feel comfortable at that time going outside of that bubble. So we were very much in an Indian community and that's it. And so our closest friends, which are still my parents' closest friends, were other doctors who immigrated at the same time. My mom would watch some of the other kids whose moms were also doctors. So, you know, they all kind of came from the same medical schools and we grew up in this very kind of small little bubble. And I would say we never did things that other quote-unquote Average Americans did like AYSO soccer or like my mom never, she never came to school. Like it was very much, we were in our little bubble. Well, you know, you and I are around the same age. And Mm -hmm. I remember as a kid, I would watch untold amounts of television, just (laughs) 
what was your relationship like with television in America as a kid? Totally the same, you know, we watched <laughs> the Brady Bunch. And, and so my husband actually grew up in India. So funny because he has none of the same cultural scooby-dooby-doo and, you know, the Brady Bunch and mm-hmm. things like that. Like he just didn't. Different strokes yeah, and yeah, all that. Yeah, none of that. Yeah, he didn't um, experience <laughs> any of that, which is such a chord to my upbringing. Being a young immigrant, I'm assuming you went to public schools as a kid? Yeah. So my parents first were like in New York, New Jersey, then moved to Boston. I think first we were in Winchester. So I went to the public schools there. Then went to Lincoln, where we moved to Lincoln, Mass, which is near Concord and Lexington. So I was in public school through eighth grade. And then in ninth grade, I went to a private school. Yeah. So the other thing about coming to America as a brown person is you get hit with this I'm assuming racism. I mean, there's no way you could not have experienced racism <laughs> in Massachusetts or New Jersey even. What was that what was that like for you? So, first of all, we lived in our little bubble. And my dad just was a doctor at that day in those days he had not started kind of any of the other work that he did. So, in my town of Lincoln, when we moved there, there was literally our family, one Chinese American family and one Bangladeshi family. And we were the only people of color in the entire town, which was very white Protestant. In fact, I think I met my first Jewish person when I went to high school. My kids are now in L.A. and they're growing up in such a completely different environment. Mm -hmm. I would say in some ways, the racism was always there, but... We were so excluded. Like my family was one of those families never tried to fit in. So it just wasn't even trying to assimilate, I would say, per se. So, of course, the Chinese-American girl who was my age became and still is my best friend. We ended up going separate ways for high school, but then ended up in college together and room together. And to this day, she's still one of my best friends. So, you know, we, I think, had that shared experience. And I think that racism that is always there, none of those people feel that they were racist. (laughs) But at the same time, we were so different and okay with being different. I think there were some Indian families and other immigrant families which made more of an effort to assimilate. As I said before, my mom never even, like, I don't remember my mother, to be honest, speaking with a white parent, like my entire childhood. That came much, much later. We were very much in our Indian community. What happened is my mom's sister and family moved from India. They lived with us for a few years. My dad's brother had moved here like a few months after my father and mother moved. They lived 10 minutes from us. So for us, it was really like we were living in this extended family. Then other cousins started moving. Then, um, you know, and our just our Indian community was our family. So we never felt, or I guess my parents never felt that they had to go outside of that. And also weekend activities became, I did um, Bharatanatyam Indian dancing. So we would go every Saturday me, my cousin, and my best friend who is Indian, every Saturday we'd go for to downtown Boston, do our Indian dance class, and then we would all be together for the day. 
So like I said before, I never did things like soccer or like any of the quote unquote American weekend things that people did. We just didn't do them. Like we didn't celebrate Christmas. We didn't do like we didn't do other things that people did. But it, I think we were very secure in our community that it didn't feel like that big a deal. It's interesting because you made a distinction earlier. You said, well, my parents didn't try to assimilate. But as a kid, sometimes I think when you're around a bunch of other kids, you want to do what the other kids are doing. But you you didn't have that temptation to want to celebrate Christmas or want to become Americanized in the same way that the other kids were experiencing. I don't think so. But I think it's we were very lucky because we had a very strong community. Mm. So I think if we were struggling, maybe in not having that community, it could have been different. I would also say, and that this comes with probably the education that our parents had, the med school that my father came from was the top med school in India, all India medical school. So my dad went there, my brother, my dad's brother went there, my dad's brother's wife went there, and everyone from our community came from Ames. And so they were literally the smartest people in the country in terms of having attained a certain education. And not only that, they were within Ames, they used to compete because everyone's ranked between being number one, two or three. And it was like no one was outside of that circle. So that immigrant community that came here actually were literally like the smartest people (laughs) in their country. They had grown up that way. And so there was probably a bit of overconfidence in terms of like, you know, because of their education. And I think Americans may not get this sometimes if they haven't been exposed to the rest of the world, but there is a sophistication that comes when you know what the rest of the world is like, especially if you were kind of among that top tier. And your dad, as smart as he was, he had a bad habit of chain smoking. (laughs) And I remember growing up, my mom also did this. And I used to just lay into her all the time. We'd be driving around in the car, my brothers and I, and she'd have all the windows rolled up. And she would be smoking a cigarette. I would just say stuff like, I can't believe you're doing this right now with your kids in the car. I was just trying to shame her. I didn't get as a kid what it meant to be addicted to something like that. But I'm curious what your experience was with your dad back when he was chain smoking and and drinking heavily. Yeah, yeah. My dad was definitely a chain smoker, but, you know, which I don't think was as big a deal to be honest in those early days to us as his drinking. And, you know, that's the thing. I think he was so stressed and my parents had a lot of financial stress and burdens, which of course, as kids, we didn't know about. And so I think his way to escape that was that whenever he had half an hour, he has this amazing ability, even in those days, to just have a nap and sleep. But I think when he actually had more time for him, the way to decompress and disconnect was just to drink. And so I think for my brother and me, our memories of those early days are a lot of fighting between my parents between uh, over drinking and sometimes even I think there's one particular episode where we both remember like it being much more explosive and my mom planning to leave and I was probably seven or something like really young but I still remember that clearly so when and we'll get into this so when by the time you know my dad discovered meditation was a really dramatic shift in our family's life because that had been part of 
those memories and experiences. You mentioned that he went and your mom was going to leave and he went and laid down behind the car or something. My brother did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your brother so laid brother, down behind my, the car? Yeah, not my dad. So That's like, very dramatic. It was very dramatic. <laughs> and like my brother was like one of those tantrum kids in general, but like he literally, and he must have been like, six years old but it was like one of those and so he literally lay down behind the car and so yeah we both like laugh and remember that but it's we all have memories that from more traumatic events but it wasn't like again we can laugh about it now so that inspired your dad to go to the christian murdy talk or something like that right yeah so my father as a young child and student actually was wanted to be a writer and loved English and poetry and philosophy. That was like as a teenager. And so the way the educational system in India works is like, like the equivalent of 10th grade here, I guess, you have to declare what you're going to study. And so my dad actually, I think, studied English. He did not do what you had to do for medicine. And then when he was 18, 19 years old and it was time to go to college, I think my grandfather basically was like, well, you have to become a doctor. And so like my dad had to like study everything. And then, of course, got into Ames, which was, you know, almost impossible to get into. And so my dad became a doctor. But I think at the at his core, he was always still like a philosopher wanting to be a writer. And so he was obviously going through professional challenges and he has some very famous stories about the fights he would get into with his supervisors and he even like walked off a job once and the supervising doctor had like you know in a very racist way said you'll never get a job again and so my dad definitely had a lot of stress and I think there was Krishnamurti was someone he studied but then Krishnamurti was in New York, I believe. And so my dad and mom went to go listen to him. And uh, they described like, I think he just went on stage and he just sat there, like he didn't say anything. So for like 20 minutes, he just sat in silence. And then he began his talk and whatnot. So I think that was for my father, you know, this was one of his heroes that he had studied his whole life. And in that talk, Krishnamurti talked about meditation and consciousness. So Around that same time, he was walking in Cambridge, where there was a very famous TM center. And my dad was just curious. So he walked in and learned how to meditate. And so again, all of that philosophy had already come with him. It had been something he had always been fascinated by. But I think the meditation gave him his first experience of connection and first experience of peace probably like because he definitely by nature had a racing mind and so for him it was very dramatic which is very typical of my father and so my father came home and took my mom to learn how to meditate right away but my mom's like a very anchored person very non-dramatic so for her it just felt kind of peaceful and like coming home and so my dad actually after that first meditation, never drank and smoked, smoked again. Like it was just, it, that was done. Being a philosopher who was posing as a doctor, do you remember your dad quoting Krishnamurti or any other spiritual philosophy before that moment when he went and learned transcendental meditation? And if so, 
I'm speaking now as you, as an as a seven, eight, nine year old, right? So you, that nine year old awareness, not not you looking back now and revising it with your current awareness, but did you feel any hypocrisy there with the way he was engaging, or did you understand that the guy's stressed out? You know, a little cigarette here and there never hurt anybody. So I don't think I equated philosophy with lifestyle, and I think at the same time the nature of I would say Hinduism, which is we were not ever a religious family, but the nature of Hinduism is that it is more like a way of thinking and a way of life. And in the community that we were in, which is basically my family, so my uncle and his family, my aunt and her family, grandparents who would come all the time, we'd go back to India every single year. These concepts were not anything that was different from the way that we lived like and I think that's just the nature of I think the culture and the religion so you know my grandmother she was always singing her prayers and you know every time before we had to do a test we'd have to go and do something with Ganesh or Saraswati which is basically setting an intention like we never approached it in a religious way but that was just the way we grew up so I would say for my, you know, for my father, it wasn't like there was this distinction in terms of philosophy and lifestyle per se. It was just he found a technique to deal with his stress, mm. I would say. And then I don't know if you were invited to come learn or you were told this is what you're about to do. So by, in general, we were never disciplined, but it's not like we had such free will. So, yeah, we learned how to meditate. Um, me, my brother, my three cousins, all like, you know, because my dad, as soon as he learned, he made my mom learn, then his brother and my aunt had to learn, my mom's sister and her husband had to learn, and then all the kids had to learn. And so we all were made to learn. And then the TM life became like for several years, like that was really this huge shift in terms of my parents' um, life, but the entire Indian community came along with it. So it wasn't like, so my dad, like within the week, the entire, our entire Indian community had also learned how to meditate. And as he became involved in the TM world, so did the entire Indian community get involved in that world. And I think to this day, my aunt still teaches TM. Like they were all super involved uh, in that world. Now you teach people, kids, you work with kids. What was your experience as a child? You're nine years old and now you're sitting in this initiation, you know, fruit and flowers and all that. What was that like? It was so like, again, family and community oriented, so it didn't feel like anything dramatic. I think what was dramatic, though, was the shift in my dad and mom's life. So, you know, as I said, my dad shifted just behaviors and over the next probably two years shifted a lot of the work that he was doing. But mostly my parents were just happier, like they were truly happier and our community was kind of all involved in it. So my cousins, like we all learned at the same time. But again, it never felt like anything momentous or different or dramatic Mm. other than over time, like parents were happier, our family was happier. And I think that's why I am so committed to what I'm doing right now is because I really felt the difference as a child in terms of our family. 
in our community. And I think what meditation did for me is it gave me a tool which was my own, which helped me feel more peaceful and connected. But so much of that was also about our family. So like when my brother and I came home from school every day, we knew we'd want, we'd have our snack and watch our TV and whatnot. But then we knew that my mom was always going to meditate around 4, 4.30. So no matter what happened, she was doing her meditation. Sometimes we'd join, sometimes we wouldn't. But it was like that was just part of our family life then very much more driven by my mom because my dad was never home. That's so interesting because when I give talks as a meditation teacher, I often say, you know, I'm sure nobody in this room grew up with parents who meditated, <laughs> especially mm-hmm. people who are our age, except you, 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 you <laughs> had parents who meditated and was meditating like clockwork, which is really fascinating. Also, your dad starts hanging out with the famous Beatles guru, the, the band Beatles learned meditate with, with the Maharishi. And you got a chance to meet the Maharishi at 13 years old. I don't know if that was the first time you'd ever met a real life guru, but I'm curious what that experience was like for you. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork. And you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. So again, I would say culturally for us, there was no like this idea of like a guru is a teacher and, you know, someone you respect that we always did with the elders. Yes, I met Maharishi quite young and we spent hours and hours and hours and hours, like literally like hours, like each sitting would be like 10 to 12 hours because he could just talk nonstop. (laughs) And so, so much of my like, probably 11 through 17 or whatever was in that time and world, which was meeting all these fascinating people. But it was like, I think by nature, culturally also, you are always respectful. So like, you know, we participated in those talks, which of course then shaped who we were. And I got to meet everyone. It wasn't just Maharishi. Like I remember once my dad was going to meet Guru Mai, 
in upstate New York. And so I went with him. I must have been in, later in my teens. And of course, wherever my dad went at that point, it, it, you know, people were always kind of very respectful because they saw him as kind of this up and coming guru, I would say. But when I met Guru Mai, like the first thing she did is she like touched me here and gave me this like burst of like crazy energy. And, you know, everybody was like amazed that she had touched me that way. I wanted to like then get the energy from me. But like for me, it was like whatever, like it wasn't that big a deal <laughs> because we got to meet so many of these people. And I think that also took away the fascination of them as well. So I would say none of us were guru oriented. We knew Marishi in a very different knowledge type of way because we got to spend so much time with him. So there was a shift that occurred where your dad, I guess he, he self-published a book. He starts becoming known as a spiritual philosopher. So my dad was specifically told by Marishi when they met Marishi told my father, you are a doctor, you write and speak well, I want you to make Ayurveda well known around the world. And then my dad self-published that book. All of my dad's books through my teenage years, I typed. So he would dictate to me and we used to have those old, old, huge IBM type computers. And he would dictate to us. And so I am a really fast typer. But actually, I think that's what has allowed me to write pretty easily is because I would type stuff. But then, of course, as I typed, if I misspell something or my grammar would be off, my dad would then like correct always grammar and spelling and things like that. So but he self-published. Nobody would publish his books initially. And of course, until recently, my dad, and still, was always attacked for what he was talking about. So again, we just were surrounded always by this very kind of racist attacks on anything that he talked about. Nothing was easy about what he was going through. What was your first indication that fame or celebrity was starting to happen in your family? That's the thing. It all happened over time. So, you know, my dad was always very focused on the knowledge in Lancaster, Massachusetts, they had a center. And so he took that over. And that center, famous people would come there. I think they were going there long before that. So it's not like they came because my father was there. They were going there already. An um, Ayurvedic center or a TM center? or both? It was a TM center where they were starting Ayurvedic consultation. And so, um, you know, all those old TMers that used to go there all the time. And so my dad was the resident doctor there. All those people would come and just the nature of our family, like I said before, we did everything together in any case. So we were always there. But, you know, some of those highlights is uh, I remember like Elizabeth Taylor coming and, you know, I, as I mentioned, I did Pratnatyam dance. So like at the dinner, I danced, you know, I did a dance for like the the whole crowd that was there, but she was there. And then, you know, people would come. And my the thing about my dad was that he was never starstruck per se. So like when Elizabeth Taylor came, she was a high maintenance person. Everybody knows that. And so the first night when she was there, she threatened to leave and she wanted like, you know, meat. It was a vegetarian place. And she threw this tantrum and my dad said, fine, leave. Like, go ahead. I don't care. And then she was kind of in shock because nobody had really, even doctors had never done that before. So I would say when other people came, it was like, 
they were interesting, but uh, my dad was their doctor. And I think everybody would share with him their deepest, darkest secrets and their vulnerabilities and their insecurities. So, of course, that was his parent uh, patient doctor relationship. But in general, when we met any of these people, they were usually there because they were suffering. So it wasn't anything glamorous at all. And I think in some ways we saw the real sadness that comes um, when celebrities have to portray one side of themselves, which is very different of who they maybe really are. Even if they have a genius like Michael Jackson did, you know, they struggled so much. It was so sad. And so I think that just shaped our perception of so many of these people that it didn't seem like anything that was glamorous. I think the other thing that is really important is my mom was never starstruck by anyone. So I think in this world, sometimes a lot of people try to become celebrities. And my dad was much more focused on being a doctor and the knowledge. But my mom never, you know, like I said before, she loved her Indian community. She never really felt the need to get it. The only time she actually got starstruck, which she told him directly, was when she met George Harrison for the first time. Because I think when my parents met for the first time, like the first thing either my dad or mom said to each other was, you know, do you like the Beatles or something like that? So that was like literally the only time I think my mom met someone who she was starstruck by but then of course he became such a close friend and you know people like Michael Jackson like they treated my mom like their mom like you know Mm. they really because my mom was just that way so like Michael once in a while would come and stay in our house but whenever he would come he'd like do the dishes and make his bed because he wanted my mom to like him (laughs) did you go to school and tell the kids I Michael Jackson was at my house the other day no so I would say like again the like I said I never felt connected to my community per se like where I either my town that I went to for high school a school that was half boarding half day but Mm -hmm. I was a day student and my parents were so strict so like while all these other kids like socialized and went out and did like things like that my mom would drop me at eight and pick me up at three and then, you know, I did my Indian dance and, you know, I, I was very academic because you had to be in our family. So I don't think in high school, like I, you know, it was fine. Like I had plenty of friends and, but it just, my lifestyle was not that way. When I went to college though, so no, I didn't share that side of, there was no need to, and I had no need to prove myself to anyone but when I went to college and made really my core group of friends and you know who still are my core group of friends I would share more of these things and I remember Michael called my dorm room a few times and it's this big joke because then everybody would like dive to answer the phone Um, to see who could answer the phone when he called because they'd like know that oh he may be calling so I was never allowed to answer the phone uh, you know and everyone would congregate in our rooms to kind of do that or like you know certain things like that which just became funny. So walk me through a conversation with Michael Jackson when you're in college you answer the phone and and how's it go? (laughs) Well Michael was so sweet Michael was like I mean Michael was obviously a very conflicted you know, had a dark side to him, but then he was really innocent and sweet. And I think with me and my brother, we were just like friends. 
And I think later on, maybe he was calling because I got involved when he did the Super Bowl halftime show. The Heal the World song was a song that my dad actually had written with Michael. And so he used to call because we would be like, no, it was actually me. I actually told Michael, I think at one point, Michael, you know, you should make Heal the World like something bigger than just a song. And then out of that came the Super Bowl show. And then I helped launch the Heal the World Foundation. But it was all like friend, like there was, it was all just normal friend talk also and again Michael brings up a lot of tragedy in my life but much later on my best friend went and worked in Michael's organization but then she actually became the nanny when he had his kids and so Michael and I in some ways more through my friend but like we kind of had kids at the same time too so that also was really sweet because he was so devoted to his kids and also because my best friend was the nanny like you know there was more of a link there. What did you see yourself becoming work-wise at that, at that age, you know, going from so when high went, school to college? Yeah, when I went to college, I actually started pre-med and soon dropped that because I realized I hated neuroscience. And then I ended up doing international relations. So I always thought I would do more international work, which I got to do ultimately through some of, you know, MTV and Heal the World and other things. So I was definitely, I went in kind of very science, but then shifted to more international work and then shifted to media. So like, again, my career has been completely windy and crazy. Did you keep up the meditation practice? And I know your dad used to ask you guys questions after you meditate. Who am I? What do I want? Did you, how much of that was still happening in your life when you were in college? A lot because there was a TM center in Providence, Rhode Island, and they were so sweet. They let me park my car there. <laughs> and so um, I used to just have to go there a lot because um, of my car. And my friends loved it because since we had a car, we could go different places. But the TM center in college became a place that I could escape to, to go meditate from you know, not being in the dorm and not being in all the craziness of college, which I loved, but like, it just gave me my own space. So that was really special and nice. And I think just the combination made me want to meditate more. Because again, as you know, as you practice more, it becomes more part of your life and you actually yearn that time as well. So I would really love going to the TM center where they had, you know, this beautiful meditation room. And I, that was like my space. And then post-college, what happened? Is that that where you started the website with your dad? um... No, so senior year of college, a couple things happened. One, my dad had a big break from Maharishi and the Mm -hmm. TM organization. And then two, I started Heal the World with Michael. Mm -hmm. So the Super Bowl halftime show was, I think, February, my senior year of college. I My senior year of college had been involved in helping organize and plan that. It was pretty cool. Like I used to get on these phone calls. That's why he would call these phone calls with the NFL and Pepsi and all this stuff to like, you know, brainstorm that show. And then when I graduated from college, literally the next day I moved to LA where I launched the Heal the World Foundation with, you know, three or four other people. So that was like my first 
job and it was like a dream of course because at that time Michael was in the height of you know fame and I moved here my best friend who I mentioned earlier was living here and another friend who we worked with so we had like an amazing that was right after college how long did that last the heal the world mm-hmm. foundation era so that was like a year i thinkish what happened is Michael had his first you know case with the kids later that year or the next year and heal the world was like the only entity where i don't think we were fully like protected and full of lawyers and things like that mm-hmm. so people like they literally started going through our trash i mean it was crazy and we went from working with all these huge organizations and you know unicef and save the children and you know corporate organizations and overnight everybody stepped back understandably i completely understand that and so it was like it went from like kind of the height of being able to do anything to people literally following us when we left the office and you know thank god it was pre the days of like TMZ and things that have become so much more aggressive and also there was just the personal side for me because I was so close to Michael and then my best friend was working there so there were many things I went through at that time and so when we decided finally to close heal the world i decided cuz i had never taken a break since college i decided to take some time off and that's when i went and i traveled around the world for like a year ish how did you manage all that emotionally cuz that's pretty traumatic i imagine hearing this thing about your friend who you're in yeah. business with and you're running the show and there's all kinds of accusations you don't know what's true what's not true how, how did you deal with that it was traumatic maybe one of the things that meditation gives us is this ability to maintain an equilibrium so of course i've gone through many ups downs traumas non traumas but like i feel like i i don't engage that much in getting caught up in it so of course the michael stuff at that time was one of the more hard times both emotionally and also just the reality of all these crazy people around us because Michael attracted crazy people even otherwise and i think my reaction after getting through it was like i need a break but <laughs> i need to leave and so that's why i kind of then took this time for myself because it was very intense at the time but i got through the time fine um mm-hmm. it was just then you know the reaction was like okay now i just need to totally separate from it and what did you come away from that sabbatical with what were some of the takeaways i spent like a year where i visited friends who were you know everyone was post college that year it was like the year after college i visited a friend who was in israel i went to mexico with my mom my brother and i went to italy then i went to india for i think two or three months where i traveled with college friends there and then i went to china where i met the same best friend that i mentioned from my town in lincoln she was teaching english in a university in china and a third friend from college met us and we traveled in china for a year and i think i was in a hotel i think in beijing where like i had we had been backpacking in china which was pretty nasty but i was in this nice hotel for one night and it was the night that oj simpson was being chased around brentwood and it was on cnn 
And, you know, I was like watching this on television in Beijing. And at that time, I couldn't even like reach my parents or whatever. But like, I had this insight, like, my God, like, look at the power of media. Here I am sitting in China, watching OJ Simpson being chased around the neighborhoods where I was living, you know, pre this. And so when I came back, I was really like interested in getting involved in media because I had also done all this international studying. And so that's when I decided I wanted to work for MTV, which was like the early days of MTV. And they were just starting to launch internationally. And I just traveled all over and come back. So I started just networking like crazy. Um, And it took me like about six months, I think, to get a job, which was to be an assistant to the head of international marketing. And literally, it was a horrible job. Like, I was faxing all (laughs) night because it was the international group. So, basically, I would always be there till, like, 2 in the morning. Mm. And it was very much an administrative role. And MTV had a very structured way of how you moved within the organization, which is, like, you started as an assistant, like, kind of, like, in the mailroom here at an agency. You know, you started as an assistant. And then after two years, you become a coordinator. And then after two years, you become a manager. Like, there was a very structured way of working and within three months of like being in that job I was like there's no way I want to do this for two years and it just so happened again timing wise that they had launched MTV Asia which was based in Singapore but they were thinking of launching MTV India but they were going to have like the base in Singapore still So I went to my boss and was like, you know what, I think you should send me to India because you're going to need someone in India. And somehow, I think I've been good at storytelling in my life. So I was able to kind of convince her like, you know, because they knew that I knew Michael and so assumed that I knew so many other kind of musicians, celebrities. And I said, I know Hindi, which I really couldn't speak. That also took a few months to like meet like a million people. But basically, I got this opportunity where... I was the first and only person in India for MTV for like the year before they launched. And Mm. I was like young. I was 23, maybe. And I got to do like, you know, first I stayed in the Taj in Bombay. Like I had this and I would fly between Singapore and London and New York and all these people would come and I do all the pre and post like organizing and work. And it was like the most intense education. And then I got, you know, passes to every nightclub and party. And I was like, you know, it was just like the dream. It was literally the dream. I met my husband at like a rave. Um, You know, we like, it was like the dream of like partying at that time, actually. So, and some really intense work. And what MTV did at that time, and I'm sure they do now too, is like they let young people really drive things. And so I was given a lot of responsibility. So I, always appreciate that. What's interesting is, you know, your daughter, I think Tara is what, 18 now? Yes. You know, they're approaching that age. And, you know, when you're 23, you think I'm so old. Mm -hmm. But when you're a parent and you look at someone who's 18, you're like, you're barely old enough Mm -hmm. to even drive, much less run a whole network or talk yourself into a job. So that's pretty impressive that you were able to do all of that and create all that for yourself. So you're basically like a celebrity in Asia. So I wasn't the celebrity because I was the business person. Oh, you weren't on camera. 
I wasn't on camera, but oh, my okay. friend, who's still one of my closest friends, Rahul Khanna, uh-huh. he was the VJ. Right. And so um, he was the celebrity. And it was so funny because he, like me, were actually more introverted and hermit-like. And so, you know, it was usually he and I who had to go do things together. And I'll never forget the first time we went somewhere and like this group of girls noticed him and they started screaming and running after him. And we were like at the top of the escalator and he looked at me in complete panic. Um, and, like we ran and he was like, what the heck just happened? And so it was just such a, and we were so young. This is like, right. again, we were 23 years old and it was so fun. And he's still one of my best friends who lives here in LA. So, you know, he's in my little pod when we meet with two or three people. And so it was, a again, a sweet, innocent, young time with no responsibilities yet. So it was fun. So you were the connect then. You weren't the on-air personality. You were the one that everyone had to know in Thank order God. to get, get things yeah. done. All right. So listen, I know we're running out of time soon. So I want to kind of move the story along a little bit. You end up getting married, correct? And so yeah, I meet my husband at a rave. We get married. And then we actually decide to come back to the US for business school. I really was a misfit in business school. But I think I, um, you know, after being married and just thinking about how I wanted to raise my family, which we hadn't had kids yet. I felt like we needed more education, to be honest. So that's why we came back to the U.S. At that point, which direction do you see your life going in when you were So I tell the story of being at MTV and driving around with my team, having the dream job. Um, I'm probably engaged by that point, but we get stuck in a traffic jam in one of the slums Mm -hmm. and as we're there I see a crowd of young children who are staring at a television in a shack and as we approach it see MTV is on there and everyone in my car begins to cheer because this was huge success we had reached corners of the planet we never thought and my heart stopped and I thought what am I doing And I think that's the first time in my life where I went from like this dream partying kind of crazy life to taking, having a real emotional pause and going back to the questions that you had mentioned my father would guide my brother and I through as kids of how can I serve. And I realized that while I had the dream job, it wasn't what I was meant to do. And I really had no idea what I was meant to do. So I think coming to business school and returning to the U.S. was more like a way of like, I have no idea what I want to do. So I'm just going to figure out a way to kind of get my husband back to the U.S. and for me to go back to school to think about what I want to do. Then I started a company, raised money while in business school. And I dropped out of business school. This is the problem. It's like so long, this crazy story. So I dropped out of business school, started a company, raised 12, 12, 15 million in financing. My husband, thank God, stayed in business school. So for a year, I was in LA launching my company and he was there. And it was basically what OWN ultimately became. We were trying to launch. And I was about to be acquired by News Corp which would have been a huge exit when the market crashed. Was this mypotential.com? Yes, this was my potential. 
So I, I launched that while in business school, dropped out of business school, went through this crazy, crazy year and a half of launching a company, like I said, about to be literally acquired from News Corp, had had all the papers in, they had already closed WebMD and we were going to be the next close and then the market crashed. And of course, the whole world, everything changed. And so then I went from that height to going through bankruptcy with my company and get, you know, laying off people, selling equipment, getting people jobs. Again, a very stressful time. But I remember my grandfather died around that time as well, which was transformational for my family. And then I remember literally sitting by myself, itemizing things that I had to sell for my company and having this insight like oh my god I think I'm pregnant um, and so that kind of shifted everything again and then started a whole new phase of life. Would you describe that moment as a low point in your life or is it just another opportunity to find your equilibrium and move through that? No it was definitely a low point. It was very dramatic um, because we had gone to like these total heights. And again, we were young. My husband and I were like 28, 20. I was 28, maybe. Yeah, 28, 29. Mm-hmm. We had been flown by News Corp to Australia for the Olympics where we were wined and dined. And like, at you know, we were still in business school. Like it was like, and you know, that was, those were the days when internet companies were going crazy and people were making so much money. And that's why I dropped out of school. The low point was actually when I realized like I had 75 people plus who worked for my potential and closing the company when the market was down and we were going through a hard economic time had real consequences for real people who had families. And I was still young because I didn't have, you know, we were in school and whatever. And so that was for me like the most stressful time because I was like these people aren't going to have jobs so I remember I would spend so many hours just calling anyone and everyone I knew to try to refer people to places that was like the worst part of it once that got all sorted out where'd you go after that so then I went back to school I was uh five months pregnant I'd say and I called my dean and I said or head of the school and I said listen I, you know I want to finish my MBA now at this point some month had moved to LA I was living in LA I was five months pregnant so it was really impractical but what had happened is everyone else who had dropped out of business school to launch their companies had already gone back and completed because none of their companies survived. And so I was the only one left. So he said, we're going to figure this out. So thanks to my dean, he organized for me to do one quarter at UCLA Anderson School. So I did that while I was pregnant. So it was like a hippopotamus wandering the halls there. Then I had my baby and I was at home for the second quarter. And then the third quarter, I actually went back to Chicago with my three-month-old baby and completed my MBA. But I had my mom, my mother-in-law, and my mom's sister rotate to stay with me in Chicago because my husband was working. And they took care of Tara while I just went to class. So that's an interesting point because you brought that up in your book that you ended up writing, Living with Intent. You, You talked about the conflict that you had there with wanting to go back to Chicago, but not having help and then having to be okay with asking for help, which I feel like a lot of people could be helped by hearing what your process was and kind of moving through that. 
Yeah, I mean, listen, I think so many of us want to feel like we can do things by ourselves and prove ourselves. Like one, I was in a vulnerable place because I had shut down my company. But two, I'm very blessed with a close family. And what I realized in that process for my mother, my mom's sister and my mother-in-law, I was living out the potential of what a woman can do. And so for them who had grown up in a very different generation where they didn't get those opportunities, I think it became really important for them to them <laughs> that I would I did this as well. And so and, asking uh, for help felt um, it was helpful for everyone actually. Yeah. So you became a mom. You're living the mom life. Yes. But I would say what happened is, and I talk about this in Living with Intent, as you can see, like I've had a very windy, messy journey. So I become mm-hmm. a mom. <laughs> I do all kinds of consulting. And then I launch another company. Like I'm very much like all over the place. And for me, I think I have always prioritized though my family mm-hmm. and being a mom. So all of my work has actually fallen around the opportunities that I can manage because my husband has a very busy life. He travels nonstop. So for me, it was really crafting a career that was full of constant conflict of how I wanted to serve, but really with the anchor of my family first and just kind of taking into context everything else that had shaped where I had got. Now, my husband had made so many sacrifices, especially early on in terms of when I was launching companies. And so we've always just found this balance of like making the choices that are right for our family at that time. You ultimately launched intent.com, which I'm really impressed you got that domain name, but you obviously learned a lot from mypotential.com. And it feels like intent was more of like your 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 thing, your path, your purpose. So what lessons did you carry over from my potential into launching intent.com? So intent was the complete opposite. My potential was very top down, raised a ton of money, launched in a very big way, news corp type of level. Intent started as a blog. It actually started as a blog where I invited other South Asians to blog with me. So it's like the my friend who's a VJ and other well-known Indian voices. And then we saw that it was just growing and becoming popular. So then I started inviting other people and the blog just started very organically. And so I think it was only a, a year, year and a half, maybe two years after it that I started to raise some seed money for it. But again, just friends and family. And then that grew organically. And then we started taking on corporate clients. And it was a really interesting, fun experience. And I think I I did everything differently than I did for my potential. So that's part of life is, as I said, the messy journey. It's failing. Like I've failed at so many, quote unquote, failed at so many ventures. But I learned from all of them. And then being able to kind of reinvent and learn and then kind of move forward in the next phase. And also sometimes when they are working, like I could have, I closed intent about a year and a half ago and I could have kept it going. I had kept it going for a couple of years, but I also reached a phase where I was like, this doesn't make sense for me anymore. It's not Mm -hmm. who I am anymore. And so even that process of self-reflection that we do in our meditations to also keep checking in, like, am I still doing what I want to do, what I meant to do? Just one story from your intent 
days, you talked about an encounter you had with Eckhart Tolle. Can you just share a little bit about that story? Yeah. So while I was blogging with intent, I decided to write a book, which became Living with Intent. And in that book, I had my dream team of people I wanted to interview. So it was Eckhart Tolle, Marianne Williamson, you know, Andrew Weil, people like that. And so I had about a year to prepare before I was assigned a, a date with Eckhart Tolle. So I had gone into a deep dive with him. And the book was called Living with Intent. How do we live with intention? And so long story short, I made this a TEDx talk, but I go to San Francisco to travel. I travel there. I'm feeling really sick, bad allergies. And, you know, I'm very focused on the questions that I need to ask Eckhart Tolle about intention and purpose. Finally, I make it up to meet him. Your dad had given you some advice before you went into the room. Yeah, so my dad, yeah, throughout the day in between my sneezing and trying to just get myself together, my dad kept texting me, be in the now, be in the now. And I would put these away and put off my phone and be like, what the hell is he talking about? But, would you know, again, my dad sends things like that to us all the time. And so when I finally sat down with Eckhart Tolle, I was very goal-oriented, had my questions to ask him. And when I asked the first question, he just paused and didn't answer. And then he responded with, do you hear these bells that are ringing in the background? And I kind of was so focused on my notebook and pen that I had to kind of pause and hear these bells. And I was like, yeah, so what? I was thinking to myself. And (laughs) then- Plus plus you only had like five minutes with them, right? Yeah, so I had 15 minutes. It took five, seven minutes for the intro. Then he said, let's listen to the bells. And so I was sitting there looking at my iPhone, you know, 10 minutes, 11 minutes, and these bells just wouldn't stop ringing. It was like 12 o'clock. So it was like, and I was like, what what the hell is happening here? And I'm starting to sweat and have a physical reaction to the anxiety of not getting what I needed. And I remember in this kind of very stressful moment, Eckhart has smiling sweetly. He looks like my grandfather. So there was just the sweetness there or felt like my grandfather that I finally let go and took a deep breath and was present with Eckhart Tool listening to the bells and being in the now as my dad had texted me. And it was such a shift of goal orientation to intention and just being present. And then after that, Eckhart Tolle spent an hour and a half with me beyond our 15 minutes uh, talking about intention and purpose. But the experience was something that was really transformational. So you closed Intent and you became an author of meditation books for children, which kind of to me feels like everything came together from your whole life, right? Because now you're a mom of two daughters and you wrote that book, you wrote your first one, Just Breathe, as they were teenagers. So they actually were collaborators with you in the process, from what I understand. How was that experience for you? I think we're all this, this whole crazy story ends up, as you have mentioned, is so much of my life, I have been... I'm obviously very ambitious and, you know, I'm always pushing new things and starting new things. But I have, since I've had my children, been very anchored in the role as mom. And I know from my own experience how meditation provided a tool for me that has helped me get through all of this craziness. So the opportunity to write Just Breathe came up 
And I realized there's really, you know, there's so many parenting books and there are so many books for teachers in the last five, seven years on meditation and mindfulness, but there was nothing that was addressing children directly. And I knew from my own experience as a nine-year-old what it meant to receive and understand and experience those tools. So these books, um, and my children were going through it at the same time. So before I started the book, I sat with mom, my two daughters and my nephew, who's younger than them. And I said, okay, what are the things you guys deal with? And so together we brainstormed everything from social pressure to test anxiety to you know, do I like my hobbies and what I'm doing and after school activities? And so that's really what shaped the book. So I have them here. Just Breathe is meditation, mindfulness, movement, and more basics. Then we moved on to social and emotional learning and feelings, which of course, right now with COVID, you know, we're dealing with a lot of big feelings. And then this one, which is the last one, Just Be You, which is more specific on questions, intentions, and just being your special self. And so you can think of them as like the body, mind, and spirit collection for kids. And it's been amazing because it's allowed me to work directly with kids, go into classrooms. And what I've learned, which is from my own experience, is that kids have the resilience and desire to connect to um, to self and to each other, but then they are the ones who can teach their parents. So Mm. we're kind of reversing it in terms of letting the kids be the ones spreading this knowledge. How would you describe the difference in writing these books versus writing your other quote unquote, adult books? I think for me, this is purely personal, which you know me quite well at this stage, is that (laughs) I have to be very authentic and honest about whatever I'm doing. When I wrote Living with Intent, it started off as my personal journey. Mm -hmm. Then I went to an agent and publisher. I was able to sell this book. And then I was like, oh my God, how am I going to do this? Because it's such a huge project. So I actually asked for help, something that we talked about earlier, and I got help to write the book. And that really helped me be able to express the journey. And then naturally, honestly, and authentically, when my kids were going through this teenage phase of life, and I saw that there wasn't stuff that became what was right at this time to explore. And I feel like the three books that I've done I almost feel like those are done. Like, I don't feel like I need to do more kids books now. Like I, for that age group, I've kind of created something that I feel proud of. And it's kind of done. Like, I don't want to make like an endless franchise of these books Hmm. because we don't need them. So now I'm like back in that phase where I don't know what I want to do next. (laughs) And I'm I'm again having to reinvent like what I'm going to do. And whether that's through writing or something else, I'll figure it out in time. So with this entirety of the messy journey, the beautiful mess, is, as they say in the transcendental meditation culture, if you were able to go back to 19-year-old Malika and just give her some wisdom from your last however many years, what, what would you say? Well, I have an almost 19-year-old daughter. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) But she doesn't care um, about anything you have to say right now. Yeah, who is um, about to go to college. And I have Mm -hmm. a 16-year-old daughter. So it's not actually a theoretical question. It's a very (laughs) real question um, in my family right now. I would, what I tell my daughters, 
is always remain authentic and honest about who you are and your expression. And so I do think my daughters have very different ways of expressing themselves and sharing themselves with the world. And they're very different, but I do think as a family, we try to honor that. And I think that's something that you should honor throughout your life. As a mom, though, I do say to my daughter, I have realized personally One, I come from extreme privilege, and I can never deny that. So, you know, my family had many ups and downs and struggles, but I've been able to build kind of a voice because of that privilege. And my kids will probably have that privilege too. So one, always recognize that, but then ask, so how can I serve in a greater way? And so with privilege comes also the opportunity to serve authentically. And so that's something I try to share with my kids. And last but not least is also, I'm fortunate in that I had a great education and I've had really good work experience. And so that each step of the way, that credibility actually really did help. So at the end of the day, I come from a very academic family. I want my kids to really honor and respect what education and actually work. Like if I didn't start as the assistant at MTV, it wouldn't have led to so many other things. So always be humble and go into opportunities with humility. Yeah. Who am I? What do I want? And how can I serve? Those are the questions that your dad used to ask you after meditation. Final question for you. How do you define success today for yourself? I always say living with intent is being happy healthy, connected, and of purpose. So for me, if I'm kind of feeling those, I'm good. Beautiful. So whatever you end up doing next has to check those boxes. Yes, and it will. I'm very much in like the fog right now, but you know, I do, having gone through this so many times, I trust the process and and we'll end up there. But for me right now, what I'm most grateful for is My family is healthy. My parents are healthy. My children are healthy and happy. And, you know, I grew up with that security and I want to provide that moving forward to those I love. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. We've made it to the end of the tunnel, although I could have probably gone another hour to explore more. I wanted to, I really want to talk about motherhood and your experience of motherhood, but that'll be another conversation for another time. For now, I do want to thank you so much for the body of work that you have left with the world, particularly your work with children, Just Breathe, Just Feel, Just Be You. So important right now because, you know, as we know, kids are experiencing so much anxiety and the level of competition in school and around school and extracurricular activities. You talked a little bit in your book about wanting your kids to actually be bored, which I thought was a very, it's actually a radical thing, but it's something that you and I probably experienced a ton when we were growing up. And you have to dig deep and find creative ways to express yourself. So that was really cool to see that. But yeah, that takes a lot of courage to do that just as a parent, as a person these days. And I'm I'm honored to be able to call you a friend and to be able to get you on a podcast to share the intimate details of your story. So I think it's going to help a lot of people. And I just want to thank you very, very much for making the time to come on and be so open with your journey. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Malika Chopra. 
Her new book, Just Be You, is out now. And if you have kids, I highly recommend picking up a copy of her first two children's books as well, Just Breathe and Just Feel. And in the meantime, if you want to hear more stories like Malika's, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and dig around a little bit into the archive where you'll find many other episodes with inspiring people who found their path to helping others. I'd also appreciate it tremendously if you could take a couple of minutes to rate and review the podcast so you can help other people discover these incredible stories. And for a transcript of my interview with Malika, you can go to my website, lightwatkins.com tunnel. There you're going to see a link to the transcript along with a pop-up link to sign up for my daily dose of inspiration email, which is a short and sweet daily motivational message that you'll get from me every morning at 6 a.m. Pacific time. I've been sending it out to thousands of people every day since 2016, and it's true. People get addicted to it after only a week, which I say is a good addiction. So I highly recommend signing up for those if you're inspired to do so. And of course, if you have any feedback or suggestions, you can text me directly at 323-405-9166. Guys, thanks again for taking the time to listen and to share these stories with your friends and followers. Please make sure you tag me on social media at Light Watkins so I can shout you out. And in the meantime, I'll see you back here next week with another amazing story from the end of the tunnel. You want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.